You're listening to the Global Inclusion and Practice Podcast, sharing the stories of DEI changemakers around the world. Vivian Aqua and Marjolein Vlug bring you behind-the-scenes stories and kitchen table conversations about the personal perspectives of DEI professionals, representatives, advocates, and allies, talking about what matters in this work and what sustains us in creating lasting change. There are many of us working on creating a more inclusive world. Let's share our stories. We're in this together. Welcome, Samet Akti, to the Global Inclusion in Practice podcast. We are really happy to have you as our guest, and I can't wait to hear more about you. Please introduce yourself to our listeners. Yeah, hi. Thank you for having me. My name is Samet. I was born and raised in Berlin. I have Turkish roots, so my family is from Turkey. I identify as very queer, as very non-binary. And I'm currently working as a DNI or DEI practitioner and strategist and speaker. So I work with different companies to help them understand their the diversity and inclusion challenges and also to gain some unique insights for solutions. And I also currently work specifically for one company in the in the fashion and tech industry. And there I'm the principal for the DNI strategy. So I work with the business with the leaders to embed accountability and embed initiatives to achieve the DNI strategy that we aligned internally. That would be a very short version of it. I'm also a big Beyonce fan. I was at the Beyonce concerts in Germany last week. It was amazing. Why why do you have to hurt my feelings? Because due to this, I, I, I broke my ankle. And I could not attend Beyonce. And I love it that you are a Beyonce fan. But at the moment right now, I'm feeling a little bit mixed feelings. Though. But you know Just what? I have, to, to I have to challenge that. A broken ankle should not hold you back from seeing Beyonce. I tried my best to find wheelchair positions. And they were all sold out, unfortunately. So no. I, I really did my best. Yeah, I really did my best. So I, I get oh, it. No. But I do want to say that Beyonce or those who are organizing these events, you need to think about adding more space for people with temporary immobility or permanent immobility because we are Beyonce fans too. Just putting it out there. Yeah. How many were they? Not that many. There were no, 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 no. It was just like maybe 5% or so. And afterwards, when I saw the concert, I was just like, I could have easily been dropped there or left out there. There was so much space for me to be present, but unfortunately I couldn't be present. And it was just like 10 minutes from where I live. But yeah. So much I'm work sorry. to do, so much awareness to raise and so much of Beyonce to still see. <laughs> <laughs> but continue, continue. Sorry. <laughs> well, that was it. It was amazing. It was an amazing concert. So I'm very sorry you missed out, but she will probably tour again. So. She I'm has to. Crossing my fingers. Yeah, she has to, right? <laughs> I do have a question, though, because you introduced yourself with your identity, but I was missing one thing, or maybe other things, but this is the thing that I was missing, is your pronouns. What are your pronouns? Yeah, that question comes all the time because I also don't have it in my LinkedIn, and it's, a, it's an interesting question. I pretty much use all pronouns because I personally really don't mind 
what I don't like is when, and what I also tell people to please avoid is to reference me as a man, young man, or gentleman, or whatever, because I just don't identify that way. But I, I also think the pronoun discussion is a very interesting one. I'm, of course, a big supporter because I think they're doing a lot for visibility and also trans visibility. At the same time, I sometimes ask myself, have pronouns become sort of when someone asks me for my pronouns, are they asking me for my pronouns or are they asking me for my about my gender identity? You know what I mean? I get you. Yeah. So I'm walking around being it's like the question, where are you from? Right? Yeah. It is because to me, someone asks me, what are your pronouns? Especially when I look more feminine, right? So I'm a little bit of a cosplayer shapeshifter in that sense. I have days where I look very sort of like this, very, you would read me as a man. And then I have days where people would be a little bit more confused, actually. So where I have a little more makeup on, do my hair differently than people when I go to the gym, to the sort of men's dressing room, I get very confused stares because people think I'm in the wrong sort of dressing room. But the question almost, sometimes it can even be a little bit of a microaggression when the first thing people ask is, so what are your pronouns? Because what they're really asking is, are you trans or what is your gender identity? I'm not saying this is right or wrong. It's just something that I observe that I just don't want to plaster my pronouns out there i would rather have them ask in my specific personal case so that i can share a little bit more context and this is valuable what you are sharing right now how to approach this question without it feeling cringy it is a valuable thing that you are teaching the dei professionals but also the other people who are listening to this podcast and then again also about being mindful when to ask the question and also be intentional in asking that question but my intentions were just to just to to come back to me my intentions are pure and also how should i identify you right what should i be using what is the preference that you have now you just disclose that you don't mind but that's also a very important thing because some people are very uh, particular in which pronouns people are using to address them yeah and rightfully so i mean that's Perfectly fine. Yeah. Five minutes okay. in, and we're already <laughs> so much richness. Here. It's going to be a good conversation. So, when you look at privilege, what are you use? What kind of privilege are you using in your line of work? I mean, I think there are probably many. I think one that I'm very grateful for, if I may say it like this is that I grew up in a family that values education. So my mom, my mom always used to say, knowledge is power. And I think what she meant by that is, especially given her background, uh, where she didn't have that access to education and opportunity as much as I probably had, is that knowledge can open you doors. So going to school, finishing school opens you doors studying, getting a degree opens your doors. And she was always very adamant about making that a point. And that helped me growing up to really internalize this and also understand, you know, no, you know what education, it is important. And it did open me a lot of doors. So I went to school, I, I studied, I got my master's degree. 
And that did open me a lot of doors. And I also realized that I come from a background or a household where I had that opportunity because my mom and my parents and my whole family made sure that whenever I needed to study, that I had the room and the chance and the time to actually focus on my studies. And so I was, I was very supported. And I think that got me to where I am today to a big degree. Thank you for sharing. Beautiful to, to hear you recognize that. Be grateful for that. That's a privilege. And that might be something that others listening realize. Hey, wait, that's a privilege I have too. What is, what's your, looking at your, your DEI work, what is your specialty? What's your flavor? So I, I love the question because I feel sometimes I feel like DNI professionals are supposed to do it all because we're talking about the topic of discrimination and oppression and sort of should not follow this hierarchy. But I actually disagree with that because if you work or if you hire a lawyer, an attorney, right, you wouldn't hire a divorce attorney to sort of work at a company or a music company to deal with copyright. So you have you have specialties in other industries as well. And I think it's very legit to also have it in our industry. And so when it comes to me is I always like to say that my focus is the concept and the idea of structural discrimination and the way it plays out and structures our society. So our culture, our social norms, our institutions, our governments, but also our individual actions. And this concept, I basically use it as a framework to review different dimensions of diversity, learn more about them, and then based on that to create sort of meaningful initiatives for more equal outcomes. And so my specialty, so to say, is that, but I've also focused a lot, of, a lot on sexual orientation and transgender identity, but also on race and ethnicity. And I think part of the reasons why is that I'm sort of, I live at that very intersection myself. So I have Turkish roots, my family is Muslim, and I also identify as queer. And I, I feel like just naturally, this is sort of where I also bring the lived experience and where I happen to specialize in, so to say. I love that, how you are educating us as well and bringing in that whole intersectionality aspect as well. Hi, I'm Vivian Aqua, the Certified DEI Consultant, and I would like to invite you to take your organization to the next level of understanding by collaborating with me. I specialize in helping organizations amplify their DEI initiatives and foster an inclusive environment. Reach out today to learn how I can help your organization unleash its hidden potential and create a culture of belonging. When you look at your DEI line of work, what matters to you the most? I think because I use this framework of structural discrimination, when I first learned about it, I learned that discrimination, I mean, there are different sort of concepts to it. Uh, people structure it differently, but one that I found very useful is that structural discrimination is sort of composed or is made up uh, of three components. 
and that is the cultural component, the individual component, and the institutional component. And it's basically three big things, right? But what I noticed is, especially in companies that work or anti-discrimination work often only scratches the surface and focuses only on the individual component, right? So what can we do? How can we become better allies, for example? And I feel like this is always the, a very prominent question, but at the same time, it is only a third of the equation. So we just also have to tackle, hey, how do we, how do we sort of navigate and minimize discrimination also in our culture, in our representation, in our social norms, but just as much also in our institutions, in our companies, in our governments, through the processes and policies that we have that might be biased. And so what matters to me most is to have that balanced approach and not to overemphasize the individual component, so to say. And the reason for that, that you are mentioning it, do you think that there is more of an individual approach happening right now? I'm, I'm more, I'm asking it out of curiosity. Yeah, I think so. I think sort of when I, whenever I'm on panels or uh, whenever I sort of am hired to speak at a company and do briefing calls, then one question that always comes up that people are interested in is, what can we as people do? How can we become better allies? So this idea of allyship is very, very prominent. And I mean, rightfully so. That is sort of the go-to solution for individual discrimination. But companies can do so much more. Governments, institutions can do so much more to sort of mitigate discrimination, one through the cultural lens, but also through actually reviewing the way they generate profit and they, the way they sort of, the way they make money essentially, right? So for like, let's take a beauty company, for example, of course, it's important to have allyship among the employees, but a beauty company must also look at how do we generate profit? Sort of what kind of skin types, what kind of skin colors do we cater to? Is our shade range inclusive? There's they should be so taking notes from Rihanna. <laughs> exactly. I mean, Rihanna, I think that was the breakthrough, right? She launched these 40 shades of foundation when she launched her brand. And every brand after that, I'm a big beauty sort of exactly. fan. Every brand after that, if they didn't have a shade range that it was sort of from one end to the other, no matter how many shades there are in between. But if the shade range wasn't inclusive, then the customers would really hold them accountable. And this also shows the demand of customers that there's an appetite for inclusion there as well. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. I love how you have so much vision in what you're sharing. There's so much insight and so much of your own, like, this is what I see. So I'm, I'm, I'm seeing a bit of what, a bit of your flavor in that too. And I would also love to find out more about what you feel that you are really great at? I think when I learned about the topics of intersectionality and structural discrimination and sort of their complexity years ago, that it was really important to me to break these topics down in a way that they are digestible and 
clear and easy to understand to everybody. And I actually have a comms background. So I have a master's degree in business communication. So I never wrote sort of exams, but every time we had sort of our exam was always to give a presentation about a specific topic. And so that degree really helped me to sort of deliver content to an audience in a very well-structured and clear way. And this helps me nowadays a lot whenever I'm hired as a public speaker to make the topics of intersectionality, structural discrimination, and so on, to make it very tangible, causing a lot of aha moments. And then, if I may say so, kind of nailing the perfect balance of seriousness due to the topic, but also giving it a lightness and humor. So I always say whenever I do presentations about structural discrimination, for example, I always find a chance or opportunity to make people laugh. And I think you kind of have to see it for yourself because it might sound like, okay, I'm making fun of the situation in an inappropriate moment, but it's actually not. So I've sort of find that sweet uh, have found that uh, sweet spot because I think I also I actually love public speaking moderation standing on stages that is sort of my second passion in German we we say Rampensau it kind of translates to stage pig I guess (laughs) it's just people who like really like to stand on stages sort of have I feel comfortable on a stage I also love making people laugh and so I, whenever I do public speaking, I, I bring that flavor in. I bring in a little bit of that stand-up comedy special to, to the work that I do. What, what does that bring you to be good at that? Sorry? What does that bring you, being good at that, being great at that? What's in it for you? I, I think I, I seriously love making people laugh. It just brings me joy. So this, it really is kind of my second passion. Sometimes I feel in a second life or maybe in 10 or 15 years, I will be a stand-up comedian or something. I love writing jokes. I also want to, I really want to write DNI stand-up special and sort of tour for different DNI uh, practitioners with it. I have not, I've, I have like two jokes at this point. This is something that I, that I find a lot of joy in because we're dealing with a very emotional and heavy topic and being able to laugh about the work that we do and sort of what also frustrates us about the work can be very, very relieving sometimes because we share a lot of the same experiences working with specific stakeholders, working in a society or a context that doesn't always set us up for success. and. I love making myself laugh also. Sometimes I'm also the only person who laughs at my jokes and I've accepted <laughs> that and that's fine. That's also good. But, um, you know, the audience tells you what works and what doesn't. So, yeah, I don't know. May- maybe in five years, I'm at a point where I will, I will have this stand-up special ready. I've been talking about it for quite some time, but I've just never sort of written more than three jokes at this point. Yeah. I'm so that curious. would be awesome. That yes. would be awesome. I was I was just watching Wanda Sykes on Netflix, and I'm not. I don't want to give too much away, but she's really good because ever since doing this line of work, 
I have scratched off a lot of comedians off my list because of the jokes they are making are not funny anymore with this line of work and with Wanda she yeah she does a good job and you mentioned so many things you're mentioning the the hardships of this work but also creating digestible content right I often say that DEI is uh, talking about DEI is like dropping people in the biggest ocean and setting and saying okay you have your best good luck set you up and it's a lot. It's a lot for people to consume or some people can swim and some people are good swimmers, but they are not able to swim in the biggest ocean. And I am, I'm at awe in the way that you bring things up, but also at awe that how comfortable you are with speaking, talking about a tough topic. It's not something that a lot of people know how to do or wear that coat. And I, I would say you're wearing the coat and the heels and the nails. You're wearing everything in a, in a good balance. So thank you. And what has been the biggest surprise you have encountered in your work? My biggest surprise. Let me think about this one. I think a big surprise was that I think when I first started working in the DNI world in a corporate context, the way I started was at a at a different company. I, I started in the ERG world. So I was a very active member in a in a queer ERG, so a queer network, employee resource group, right? And this is always kind of grassroots work, right? Bottom up work where you sort of are in the community, you have an idea for an event, you organize this event, you put, a, uh, you put in a lot of your time to make it successful. And in an ideal world, you're also being recognized for it by the leader of the company or by your manager, by your peers, and so on. And sometimes this work, while it may feel good, it doesn't have the most massive impact for the company as a whole, right? And so whenever I, or when I transitioned to actually do a full-time DNI role at a company that is connected to top management support and to the right people who have the right information to sort of help you or help myself advance the DNI agenda and write a DNI strategy, I realized how incredibly different the experience is if you have exactly that the connection to the right people who have access to the most senior people in the company. I've worked in DNI jobs where we sort of had a symbolic sponsorship in the top management level. And that is, that is nice. But I've also worked with people who are not in the top management level, but sort of in a different role at the company that is very well connected throughout the business and that we're able to give us a lot of access to the right stakeholders to make decisions or to sign off decisions or, and, or basically just share recommendations in the DNI sphere. So I think my biggest surprise was before I had those touch points, how big or the difference it makes to be connected to the right people and to have sort of allies in the, in the right roles in the company. What is, what is the difference that, that makes to you personally 
and to your energy level and your motivation level? I feel like it's a question of being set up for success, right? I think we can all relate to not being set up for success, whether it be in a DNI role or in a very different role. And sometimes when you feel like you are sort of doing a lot of work, but just it ends up falling into this black hole and no one really cares and you're doing this on your own, then it can be very frustrating. It doesn't feel very rewarding. And oftentimes, I think in the DNI world, this can happen if someone is too proactive, meaning they are doing something or they're investing energy and work into a project or sort of an idea that was that they don't have the mandate for by the top management, for example. This happens a lot in DNI because we're passionate about the topic. So we might sort of start writing a queer inclusion strategy uh, for the company, but no one in the company asked you to do that. And I'm at a point, yeah, yeah. And I'm at a point where I wouldn't do this because I, I would spend so much time and energy and effort into writing this, but it would just sort of be like, well, yeah, no one really asked you to do this. So yeah, sounds important, but it's nothing that we need right now. Here's so, a beautiful place on the shelf that you can put it. <laughs> sorry? Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. so then where do, you, where do you put that energy? I mean, if you have the thought and you think, I would really want to do it, but I won't because it's not going to land anywhere except on a shelf. Where do, you, where do you channel that instead? Well, what I would do instead is actually, if you have sponsorship in the company, if you have top management support, if you sort of have the, have a good reporting line also, then if you have a recommendation, then I would share that recommendation one time with your manager or, or sort of with the top management, with your sponsors and say, hey, this is sort of the strategy we have. And in order to achieve the strategy, we need a sort of queer inclusion strategy as well. This is what it would be beneficial for. If we don't do this, this is what would be the risks. This is what could happen. And then it's up for the top management to decide if they want to continue with this or not. If they say yes, good. Then they give me the mandate and the resources and the influence to sort of build the strategy. If they say no, then I will stop right there. Sometimes it's okay to also challenge it one more time, but I will, not, I will not go out of my way to convince people to do something if they don't realize the demand for it, because sooner or later, they will. This is what happened in a lot of companies. There were so many people sort of trying to make DNI roles happen, have more awareness of DNI, but companies didn't care really. Until 2020, Black Lives Matter resurfaced once again. Many companies were called out for their lack of diversity, lack of inclusion. And only after hitting rock bottom, only after sort of being publicly called out, they decided to install these roles. And this is where we come in then. I would not pitch for this role. I would wait for them to realize this is what we need rather than fighting that fight and fighting for resources all the time. True. I get it. Hey, are you ready to rediscover focus, clarity, and resilience so that you can be a stronger change maker for diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging? I am Marie Lafleur. I'm a certified coach. 
And whether you're getting started in DEI or are further along in your journey, I can support you to take your work to the next level. With me as your ally, you can gain clarity on your next initiatives or career goals, make intentional choices, stay accountable to them, deal with the intensity of the work and create real change. Let's talk. I'd love to learn more about you. Reach out, book a chat. With this job, a lot of things sometimes can be said that you can assume that it's personal, it's a personal impact, but what do you do to not take things personal? I've been asked this before, and my answer back then was, I just don't. And I couldn't really explain why. And when I think about it more, I think there's a little bit of a contradiction there because at, at, on the one hand, I say, I cannot afford to take this personal because the work that we do serves a community, oftentimes a community we belong to. And for this, we have to have resilience, right? So I cannot really afford to take things personal like that, especially in a corporate setting, nothing is personal. You know, people do things because they think it will make them sort of, it will bring them closer to their agenda or to their goals. This is just the reality of business, really. But I think in the DNI world, I realized that to be successful in a corporate setting, it's important to actually not identify with the work that I'm doing and gaining personal value from it. And I think this is so important in the DNI field because oftentimes, we are very personally connected to the topic. We often are so personally affected by the topic. And so there is a very high chance that we also enter this field because of passion for the topic. And this might sound a little bit extreme, but that very reason or th that very situation is often the reason why DNI practitioners burn out or do this job for maybe two years and then quit. Exactly. Are, they are very frustrated. They are burnt out. And I told myself, I, I, I did have a little bit of a burnout actually when I was 22 years old, but this is another story. It didn't have anything to do with DNI. But I realized I will not uh, sacrifice my mental well being for a company which has as its main goal to generate profit. So at the end of the day, it's a job and you should never take anything personally at the workplace, especially not if you're a DNI professional. I just think it's especially hard in this field. Yeah, which is, which is a challenge though. But while you were talking, I, I immediately was thinking about Beyonce's song, Bigger. Which is, which is my mantra, my everything. Uh, definitely will share that in the show notes, but also the, the, the part where you have to be, be a sustainable DEI professional because if you don't activate sustainability amongst yourself, amongst your well-being, then yes, you will be depleted. Yes, you will burn out. And yes, you will walk away with, I was expecting so much change, but I couldn't. And a lot of people walk into this role with so many expectations, expecting that 
now that they are a chief diversity officer or now that they have a dedicated DEI role that magically everything will be better. And I always say to people, we are not Olivia Pope, nor are we Harry Potter, or nor are we there's somebody else who fixes everything, right? We are there to support the business. We're not Bob the Builder. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I also think that actually sometimes I don't even think companies hire DNI professionals and then just think, oh my God, now finally everything will be fixed. But they actually hired DNI professionals in 2020 and said, okay, now everything is fixed because we hired someone. And that those people, those sole DNI practitioners, I feel very sorry for them actually, because they are hired and they become the scapegoat of everything that goes wrong in the DNI sense at a company. The ERGs lash out at them, individuals lash out at them, leadership lashes out at them. And usually that person was just hired symbolically, right? So they are reporting to someone super random. They don't have any influence. They don't have any budget. They are not connected to the right stakeholder groups. They don't have the necessary information to actually make change in the company. So to every DNI practitioner out there, actually, when you see a job ad, read it very thoroughly and ask the right questions because the expectations for DNI roles are, they are insane. It's so much, it's four jobs in one. And oftentimes without the necessary conditions to do anything that has any substantial or impactful outcome. I'm, I'm so curious what, you know, in terms of resilience, there's, you talked about clarity, clarity in role, clarity in, uh, in, in, you know, intentions in the organization that is essential and connections you know to the right people but for you in terms of, of resilience that is also needed what is the thing that recharges your batteries yeah i mean i definitely had to learn that recharging your batteries is super important so i grew up very queer so i was always very horrendously bullied for sort of being very feminine all my life and long story short, what I did was I didn't have any sort of self-worth in my eyes. So I built my self-worth based on my performance. So based on the grades I got in school and in university, and it got to a degree where I was so invested into getting nothing but A's, being sort of the front runner everywhere that I did suffer actually a burnout and I was... I developed a panic attack disorder. I started having panic attacks and I was put on antidepressants and I was only 22 years old back then. And it just goes to show that you always need to have a balance in life with everything and especially with anything that has the, or that opens up even the tiniest possibility of you being over invested into something and i think dni is a very very sort of common phenomenon or a, a common sort of industry where people are being over invested and tend to deprioritize their own well-being because we are doing this for the community 
but the community doesn't benefit from you over exhausting yourself. So that, I think that that's one thing. What I personally do is I actually exercise every single day. So whenever I have this build up frustration or because I'm just literally sitting all day in my chair, I said, no, I need to get up. I need to move. And it's not like I'm looking forward to it. Like most of the time, I'm like, no, I just want to sit on the couch and eat snacks. But I always go because there has never been a situation where I went to the gym and said afterwards, oh, I shouldn't have gone. Like I regret, I, I regret this. It has never happened in the last like 10 years. And so I just exercise a lot because I always like to call exercise sort of the natural antidepressant. I think I can say this because I'm actually still on antidepressants. I'm very happy with them now, but having sort of the exercise part of your, of my life is so, it really helps me gain perspective also. It's a, it's a good stress reliever for me personally. Unfortunately, I cannot do this at the moment, but kickboxing was my way of releasing challenges that had to do with the work, but also in personal life, right? And um, missing that, I have to find other ways to release that. But it's a very important factor that you are mentioning that people need to find ways to release the tension or set themselves up for success by filling in their own cup instead of waiting till they are depleted. So I truly love that. And I am curious about what is your dream? In my dream sort of in a, in a DNI context, you no, mean? No, 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 your dream in general, whatever you feel like it's fitting for, what is your dream? Oh my gosh. What's your dream, dream Summit? Yeah. I think I have, I have, I have two dreams. One is sort of meet Beyonce. <laughs> meet, I actually touched Three Beyonce's dreams. hand one time. Yeah, I was like a back in the day. I was a super fan. Like I was one of those people who would camp at four a.m. in front of the stadium to be wow. in the very first row. And I actually made it twice. So I was first row at a Beyonce concert twice after spending like fifteen hundred euros for a ticket. And I actually touched her hand. She also acknowledged me. She like waved at me one time. I felt like I was, I, it was a spiritual experience in that moment. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> my dream. How did you do? <laughs> I mean, yeah. So my dream, obviously to meet Beyonce. Uh, my second dream is in a more so, sort of general context is I think with the work that we do is that one day we sort of live in a world that is designed in every way for those who are the most stigmatized, right? I think stigma and discrimination, I, I do think it will, it will prevail for still a very long time. But what we can do in the meantime is we can make sure that we cater to those who are the most discriminated. Like if the most discriminated person on this planet, whatever that means, if that person is set up for success, has sort of access to opportunities, can thrive, live freely, then it means everyone can, right? It, this sort of bottom-up approach. Seeing that world, we do see it in very little examples already. So when we look at 
like innovations like texting, for example, right? Texting was a technology that was invented, I think, by two deaf people for communication, but it was so accessible and it, it's so convenient that everyone uses it now. And we even forget, for, we, like we forgot that it was invented to sort of be more accessible for those who are the most discriminated when it came to written communication or verbal communication, right? And seeing more and more examples of, of this, like introducing subtitles, for example, making sure that everyone can sort of benefit from a specific program, for example, I think this is the right step to take. There's so much, there's so much that we can still add until everyone has those opportunities. A beautiful wish. Yeah, it's a dream and a wish. I'm there with you. <laughs> we are there with you. With Beyonce too, though, I hope. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll arrange a meet and greet, okay? <laughs> Perfect. Now, that's a good plan. I'll make sure to check Beyonce. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure she will respond. I I have a, 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 a maybe a big question, but you tell me. Summit, who are you becoming as a person? Uh, to be honest, I, I I don't know. I've I I was always someone who knew very well what they will be doing in the next five years and ten years. I always planned a lot, but whenever I realized that that actually didn't help me because I was so fixated on it and deviating from this plan meant failure or distraction, I realized that was not a healthy, healthy mindset to have. So I don't know who I am becoming. I just, I have principles and values. I have people who also hold me accountable. I also aim a lot to hold myself accountable, to reflect a lot on my own behavior. And so I'm, I am at a point where I'm confident in my ability and in my surroundings that I'm trying to be the best person, the best version of myself that I can in every sense with interpersonal relationships, but also the relationship with myself. Of course, none of that is perfect. I don't think it ever will be. But I'm just trying to live in the moment and not think too much about where I will be in the next two or three years or five years or whatever, because I feel like it distracts me from here and now. So who are you becoming? I guess TBD. Well, then what I'm hearing is you're becoming someone who is more attached to living according to your values and being present in the moment than someone who sticks to preset plan yeah that's a good good way to put it thanks for sharing that you're making Thank it you. hard for us or at least for me to host and and because i'm listening and i'm just like wow where were you when i started my career like this this is these are things that so many of us need to hear because some of us are are living for work instead of the other way around, right? Working so that they can live, so that they can sustain that that those activities, social activities. And I, I love everything that you shared. So yeah. 
Yeah, and, and, and maybe to connect it back to, I think, the very first question around privilege, right? I, I also had the privilege that I work with people and still work with people who are either extremely smart or extremely and or extremely experienced in working in corporations, working in DEI. And so I always had the privilege to learn from extremely smart people. And um, I, I think sort of when it comes to this, this DNI work, one person that I really want to shout out and that I also want to sort of recommend to sort of buy her book actually and, and read her book is Sarah Cordovano. I, I'm sure you probably we know, know her. her. <laughs> she will also be a guest speaker in the future. Uh, amazing. <laughs> yeah, of, of course she is. I mean, that doesn't surprise me at all. And she will talk about this too, but Sarah also like wrote a book called DEI, How to Succeed at an Impossible Job. And it's exactly for those people who are the one person in the company doing DEI. And I think that should be one of the standard like books to read if you enter this field. And I had the privilege to work with her, to learn a lot from her. And so this is also definitely something I can recommend to um, learn from Sarah when, when you have the chance. You already beat me to the question. So maybe I need to rephrase the question that I have for you. And that is, okay. what recommendation do you have when it comes to maybe a book? Well, you mentioned the book. So maybe I need to refer to audio or have music recommendation too. <laughs> music, well, a lot of music recommendation, definitely Renaissance. Right? So my recommendation <laughs> is Renaissance, Stream Renaissance by Beyonce on Spotify. <laughs> Yeah, so obviously Sarah's book, I think, is a good one. Uh, what I personally love to read, actually, is our articles around DEI by Harvard Business Review. So they have very cool articles on all kinds of topics that I found very, very valuable. So I definitely recommend following Harvard Business Review, for example, on LinkedIn or checking out their, their, their website. I find it very interesting. I will also, of course, shout out myself because I of create course. content on LinkedIn too, on all things DEI. So I always, uh, it might give you a little bit of a taste on how I package content and how I communicate this context, uh, content around structural discrimination and microaggressions and queer inclusion and, and the likes. And a movie? A or movie? A oh my show? God. I'm, not a big movie watcher, actually. You know what I will recommend? It has not come out yet, so I have not watched it also. But I'm really excited about the Barbie movie. I think it's coming was, out in like... I almost thought like, okay, is he going to share Barbie? But I was like, no. Really? Yeah. Maybe I shut up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when, when this episode Why? comes out, I, I don't know. I feel like, I mean, there are a lot of, in the DNI sense, there's a lot of problematic stuff, of course, with Barbie, right? And sort of the legacy it has. But also, as this queer individual and the queer kid that I was, Barbie is also a little bit iconic, right? The pink color, sort of everything about it. So I am sort of also, maybe, let's call it a guilty pleasure, perhaps, but I am really looking forward for that movie and seeing it sort of come to life, really. Ooh, let's like see. That. 
and definitely when this episode airs barbie is out so it should be out maybe for streaming by the way so definitely imagine this episode coming out and the movie is just super problematic like imagine the reviews are just like don't watch this movie oh, well, everyone just... who's listening to well, this well Ryan Gosling is in it so I don't think that it would be that problematic right Let's this see. is my guilty pleasure yeah let, we, we we will put a disclaimer in case that happens send us a note put all your comments and all your responses to the movie under this episode <laughs> so we can have a healthy discussion about it too. Exactly, exactly exactly yeah a, as, as a very last no, a very last question. Um, what is a personal heartfelt recommendation and an inspiration that you would love to share? I, I think I will connect it back to the one thing that we discussed, and that is this overemphasis on the individual component of discrimination, because I don't remember where I saw this or read this, but there is one sentence that has become my motto, my sort of go-to sort of, yeah, motto to do DNI work. And that is change systems, not people. And all that says is that stop wasting your time trying to convince every single person at your company to that racism exists and that racism is bad, for example. But invest that very energy into actually changing the system that it is more that it guarantees more equal outcomes for black people for people of color and so on because the individual component will actually almost resolve itself once the system and the policies and processes are set up in an inclusive way because those who have a problem with that eventually will not be able to succeed or will just leave the company because they cannot identify with it any, anymore. So I, I told myself I will not sort of invest my energy into doing education sessions every week, but investing that same energy to work with people who have decision-making power to change the way the company operates. Well, that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, as you say that, it's I see that, that that is something you've said to yourself that you now also really want to say to others and give to others. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this conversation. Um, it, yeah, I, I think I need to process this conversation the whole day because you dropped a lot of gems, a lot of insights, and also um, hearing the way you talk and what you are talking about, what you're passionate about, finding an alignment with, you know, being fan, being Beyonce fans and so many other things that people will walk away with a lot after hearing this session. So for those of you who have any questions or for those of you who want to connect, please connect and reach out to Samet because this was a very good conversation and looking forward to hear your insights. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Yes. Very welcome. So when are we doing the Beyonce episode? Okay, we're planning that. Season two? Season two, okay. I think we have to do, right? We have to do that. (laughs) All Beyonce fans, subscribe. Yes, exactly. uh, (laughs) 
Thank you for listening. You're warmly invited to pause for a moment and think about what stood out to you from this conversation. Please share this episode with others to inspire them too. Make sure to subscribe to our Substack channel. We'll be back soon with more episodes. Be well, take care, and stay connected.